If you would like to buy your own copy of the American comic book industry in Hollywood, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35 followed by your respective country code USUKCAAE depending on where you're located. Alyssa Perrin is Associate Professor in the Department of Radio, Television, Film and Co-Director of the Centre for Entertainment and Media Industries at the University of Texas at Austin and an Editorial Collective Member of the journal Media Industries. Gregory Styra is Associate Professor of English and Film Studies at Dickinson College and a former National Endowment for the Humanities Fellow and researcher for the Carsey Wolf Center's Media Industries Project. Together, they are the authors of The American Comic Book Industry in Hollywood, which traces the evolving relationship between the two industries from the launch of X-Men, Spider-Man and Smallville in the early 2000s through to the ascent of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Arrowverse and the Walking Dead Universe in the 2010s. In this episode, we'll be delving into why superhero films have become the culturally dominant type of film in the 21st century, the lack of understanding film and TV people have about what artists do in comics, why comics have largely been a precarious industry to work in as a creator, and much, much more. Take a listen. Hello and welcome to the Boomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Wayman Cam. And I'm Rebecca Barden, co-host and publisher of the BFI Booklist here at Bloomsbury. And today we are speaking to Elisa Perrin and Gregory Steyer, the authors of The American Comic Book Industry and Hollywood. Welcome to the show, both of you. Very excited to be speaking with you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here. There's a lot to cover. And actually, there's a lot that you cover in your book. But I think something to, to start with first is that this is very specifically about the business of comic books in America and how that has evolved with relation to Hollywood. To the casual observer nowadays, it feels like Hollywood and comics are very heavily intertwined. You know, something that I think people hear a lot in terms of like corporate buzzwords be synergy, which is something that you talk about in the book. You kind of use a metaphorical kind of representation in the introduction briefly by sort of talking about a particular comics crossover event from 2015 done by DC Comics. And the crossover event was Convergence. And I'm just curious, why did you choose that particular comics event? Because for those of you listening who uh, don't read comics regularly, the big two Marvel and DC semi-regularly have a lot of like comics uh, crossover events. So why did you pick this one in particular to sort of represent, you know, basically what you're talking about in the book? I think we were both interested in it because it represented or it was done in order to enable DC to move its headquarters, its staff, and most of its staff from New York, which had been where the seat of comics publishing had historically been to Southern California. So they created this crossover where they could suspend their regular line of books and then hire artists and writers who weren't regularly, most of them weren't regularly working for them so that they could essentially just give people time to move and become closer to parent company Warner Brothers in Southern California. So we were all interested in talking about that move from the beginning because it seemed to represent this literal bringing together geographically of the comic industry and the and Hollywood but also was just wonderfully named. Um, convergence is a kind of buzzword, has been for at least a decade in media studies, more than that. And it's a kind of ambiguous concept that points to a lot of things, including the merging of 
different media together and the merging of different media companies, kind of these media conglomerates. So the fact that DC called their event that while they were literally doing that, it just seemed too good to resist having that be our open metaphor. It also helped that the event was something of a failure. Like it did some interesting things and it did enable them to do that move, but it was not popular. It didn't seem to create any kind of new working relationships among didn't even involve Hollywood or Warner Brothers and working with it. So it also pointed to something that we wanted to explore in this book, the ways that the two industries have come closer together, but also the ways that they remain distinct and separate. Just as a follow-up to that, why did you in particular want to write about the business of comics and like the ties to other cultural industries? As we've got a lot of writing about comics and Hollywood in the last decade or so. But I think, as you note in the introduction, there's not a lot of reporting or writing in general that pretty much goes into like the nuts and bolts of it all. Yeah, I think that there's a couple things. One, so much of the focus in terms of comic scholarship has been more on representation or style and not really thinking about the business side of things. Also, comics and Hollywood clearly are a relationship that is such a dynamic and increasingly high profile one. And so much of the focus oftentimes has been about, in particular, DC and Marvel and the movies and TV shows, but not necessarily accounting for the comics industry itself. And so in some ways, we were both interested in these individual industries and their interrelationships, as well as Greg noted before, their distinctive attributes that they sustained. But also you can think about how we think intra and inter-industrially on a larger sense, because a lot of the issues we address, especially in terms of things like intellectual property, licensing issues, those are faced with other industries as well, albeit in distinct ways. Think of podcasting, for example. And so... Part of it is also thinking about how we push the way we think about different industries and their intersections and interrelationships. And Ming, if I could add, we also both have some personal reasons. (laughs) Growing up, my family owned a comic book store. So the business side was always was part of my life. So So it felt natural to ask those questions. And Elisa also has a personal tie to the industry. Yeah, I think what was fun about writing this with Greg in part was His background is very much on the sort of retailing and fan-oriented side. And my background was coming to comics as someone who didn't grow up as a reader or really a fan of that industry or medium. But my personal relationship with my partner, Cully Hamner, he's a comic book artist. And actually, when we first began dating so long ago, it was during the time when one of his comics that he had co-created was being made into a movie. And so I sort of became immersed on the business side and in the culture of the creators. And that piqued my interest as an industry scholar. He made the beautiful cover. Yes. Oh, right. Which we love. (laughs) (laughs) Rebecca just held up the very beautiful book, by the way. It's very cool. It is on the Bloomsbury website, by the way, if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was, I, I couldn't, refuse, or rather I had to request far in advance that to be my cover. And as you can see in the background is the original on my office wall for those of you that are not 
viewing it. (laughs) (laughs) So I know that your main focus in the book isn't so much the kind of Hollywood movies that have been adapted from comic books, but in terms of superhero film franchises and the universe of the universes of comic books, obviously these are sucking up resources and creative energies in terms of production and exhibition in Hollywood. Why do you think these superhero films have become the culturally dominant film genre of the 21st century? So I think that there's a lot of different reasons. Certainly you can point to and no shortage of scholars have pointed to the sort of ideological and cultural resonance of these, the sort of post 9-11 context, that sort of thing. I think my purview or investment is more in terms of thinking about how industrially they become a way to lie on a fandom that is longstanding and built in that they are dependent in part on a generation, really, of people who grew up reading these books and not oftentimes being happy with the earlier iterations (laughs) of the movies and TV series who finally gained power in Hollywood. I think that also the capacity for visual effects to reach a certain level contributes as well. I think that there's sort of a range of industrial forces, also the global appeal, right? They're inherently very visual. And for an industry that's oriented towards global release and spurring people to be motivated to come to theaters and can be infinitely spun off and rely on other material to be mined, (laughs) it's sort of the perfect confluence of a variety of factors, I think, that made them well-timed to be a dominant form. I think I would add to that too. And I think maybe this is something we could have discussed more in our book, except that it's been really in the last few years that we've seen this happen. But that television has actually come to replace film as kind of the dominant visual medium in the world, in this country. And so there are fewer movies being made and they have higher budgets and they need to do a lot more and make some of that money back also through merchandise and be work on a global scale. So as the number of kinds of movies shrink, certain kinds of genres are disappearing, like romantic comedy, for instance. And in their place, we're getting these visual spectaculars that actually make more visual sense as movies than as something on our TV screens. And I think that is also pushed in this direction. I mean, superheroes and comic adaptations also figure in TV quite widely, as we talk about in the book. But the companies like Disney and Warner Brothers relying on these single tentpole films, the superhero works that way and can also generate a lot of secondary products like T-shirts, toys, DVDs that still sell. So I think that shift from film to television has also played a part here. So are there any superhero films that have been released first on a streaming platform or are they always, for the reasons that you say, they always have a theatrical release, presumably? COVID has created some problems and experimentation there. So I'm not sure Mm. we're in a phase that we try to talk about. The book came out still in the heart of COVID Mm. when lockdowns were still happening. And so in the end, we try to think about what are changing at this point. 
And even the whole finance model of Hollywood, both on the film side and television side, seems to be changing. So we are seeing more movies go direct to streaming sites, but I'm not sure if that is a long-term thing. Some of it was done because cinemas were shut down. So we had things like Black Widow go straight to Disney+. And then there have been other films that seem to have just an uncertain future at all, like the Batgirl film, which is now totally been shelved, but looks like it was originally intended to be released for streaming. I'm not sure I can answer that. Who knows is my answer to that question. <laughs> at least I don't know if you, if you agree. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an interesting question because for the reasons Greg notes, but also comics have been kind of been at the front end of a lot of these tensions, right? Wonder Woman was, I think, get, got so much press right out of the gate for being moved to streaming due to the COVID context and Black Widow, as Greg notes. And of course, the Batgirl situation, also Blue Beetle, which was supposed to be created straight for streaming. Warner Brothers shifted, and now it's going to get a theatrical release in August. And I think that speaks to the recalibration that's happening right now where and the larger sort of state of streaming of realizing that these big films and the sort of economics of how they work and the desire to sustain the film industry in a theatrical model, I sense that they are the most likely to move back to theaters and be less explicitly straight to streaming. But it's worth noting that like there have always been these kinds of straight to video pre-streaming era versions of comic book projects that have been released. And so in, in fact, there's probably more of a movement to theatrical in some ways that we're seeing now than before. I don't know, Greg, if you'd agree with that. Yeah. And I would just add to that, that the whole economics of the film and TV side is nobody knows how it's supposed to work anymore. And we keep having new owners come in. So I think there'll still continue to be a good deal of experimentation. But I agree with Elisa that in this new era of cost cutting on the streaming side, that these big blockbuster films need to make money. And so we're going to go back to the theater. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Like, I don't know, just as someone who has like has a Netflix account and vague interest in like the business of like cultural media myself, whether Netflix are actually going to return things to the theatre because that's not that's not their business model. Apart from if they're going for some sort of Oscar bait film where they release something in the theatre for uh, a week, it has been like absolutely fascinating to watch the Warner Brothers and HBO. Max situation over the last couple of months, especially because, you know, relating it back to something that you talk about in your book, what appears to have been affected the most has been, you know, things that are related to comics or animation. A lot of the cartoons that were supposed to be either on HBO Max or related to, you know, those companies have been completely canned. And in a way that means that the creators will never be able to access their work again. That just makes me so angry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just remember reading about that and being that, but that, but that, like they created that. It really sort of put me in mind as well of the, of something that you talk about in your book, which I think we'll put a pin in this and come back to it later, but the exploitation of, of comics creators by a lot of the comics companies. We'll come back to it in a second. So there's a lot of uncertainty around audiences with regard to streaming, theatrical release, Hollywood at the moment. With regard to the, comic books industry in America at the moment, 
be a little cheeky here. Do people still read comic books and which audiences? And I'm presuming that this has evolved over, you know, the history of the 20th century. Could you talk about that a bit, please? People do still read comic books. Not a ton of people, of course. And I don't think that number has changed much during the course of the 21st century. New comics come out every Wednesday. And wherever I am, I go to a comic book store on Wednesday, partly just to even to observe who's coming in. And it is quite a range of people in terms of age, gender, race and ethnicity. So I do think that the pool of readers who used to be characterized as kind of white men between maybe the ages of like 12 and 30 has expanded. And we have quite a variety of readers. And that is reflected also in the offerings, which we have comics that are explicitly designed for children that are aimed at gay audiences, black audiences. And we have the mainstream comic book companies like Marvel and DC also taking into account of these potential audiences too. That said, it's a very expensive medium to buy. A typical comic costs like four or five dollars. And that's for one, usually like 26 page comic that will you can read and 10 minutes at the most. So in terms of the value that's coming to a consumer compared to something like having a Netflix account, it's much lower and I think is a big hurdle to expanding who's reading them. But I would also say that one of the things that's been exciting to watch happen in the last decade is the superhero genre in comics seems to be diminishing in its hold on the industry. The third biggest publisher is Image Comics, which mostly doesn't publish superhero comics anymore. The best-selling graphic novels are not superhero comics. And there has been a giant flourishing of horror has made a comeback. And so I think that even though the readership is maybe not growing, I do think from my perspective, we're kind of seeing a creative moment of renaissance in the comics industry where it's reimagining who comics are for and what they can do. I will just add, we've mentioned this in the book too, but... Sadly, the success of comic-based films and TV shows does not translate into any additional readers of comic books based on quite a number of studies have now been done on that. That's something that I was actually not entirely surprised by, but it did surprise me a bit because personally, I would have thought there would have been at least a bit of a bump. So to, to read that, like, for the most part, it doesn't really translate into a huge number of sales did surprise me. What have been the strategies of, you know, comic like publishers with regard to if something gets adapted with regard to Hollywood or if they manage to like sell, you know, the IP for something, do they actively then go back to, you know, what they've sold? And, you know, obviously this is dependent on the the creators, but do many of the comics publishers then actively go back and say, we should try and capitalize on this? Do they publish something new? Because I was just thinking of to the Eternals film, uh, they got one of the big writers, Kieran Gillen, to do a new Eternals storyline. But from what I can remember, that didn't actually like relate to the storyline of the Eternals movie. It was just like a new story that they were trying to obviously indirectly capitalize on. So I was just wondering if you, if like, is there a general sort of correlation with regard to publishers who manage to like sell stories? I think that, and at least I remember having conversations with you about this that. We were struck way back when we first started talking about this book by the way that the comic book publishing side of the conglomerates didn't seem to know what the film or television were doing. So you mentioned, I mean, that was one instance of at least they had an Eternals comic come out when the film was coming out. Sometimes they just wouldn't even have titles. Like when there was a Supergirl TV show, there was no Supergirl comic for a while. Or the content of the comics was so different that... Anyone that would have come in would have been confused if they were a fan of the film. 
I'm not sure that it's actually that easy to get them in sync, but there didn't seem to be much effort put into getting them in sync for many years. And I don't really think that's changed besides making sure that you have the titles on the shelf, at least that match. But I don't know, Elisa, what do you think? I think with the major projects, the major theatrical projects, there is at least effort to have more coordination and strategy in terms of like, new covers are reissuing <laughs> sometimes things that are out of print. And I'm just thinking here of Blue Beetle, for example, which I know like they just started to like reissue <laughs> because the movie's coming out. There hadn't been like new copies of the graphic novel produced, if I'm not mistaken. But I don't think that it's like systemic or widespread necessarily. It depends on the scale and scope. And I think they're constantly recalibrating their strategies because all of these companies keep restructuring and also laying people off. And so that complicates things as well. I'd also say like it depends on the publisher, right? So some of it for the creator-owned publications will, will be driven more by the creatives like trying really hard to push for their own benefit, right? As opposed to a top-down kind of model. I think it's also interesting just to note that the two mediums, film TV of three mediums and comics are also just very different and have very differing exigencies of like what one can do or what they need to do. But I think as an example of like Mark Miller's work for Netflix. So Netflix bought Mark Miller's comic world called Miller World and the titles that weren't already encumbered through licensing deals to other companies. And so here was an example of where you had the creator working for Netflix, also as a producer in charge of the things. And we would assume you really can't get more creative control over these projects. And yet the Jupiter's Legacy stuff that came out on Netflix ended up not doing well. They didn't renew the first season. There was a, a cartoon spinoff that didn't do well. And so he's continued to publish Jupiter's Legacy in some form in the comic, but he can't constantly be adjusting each of them to keep them in sync when the ultimate decision maker is not him. And again, he has a privileged position compared to most comic creators working across both industries. So just that, I think that's an interesting example of the limitations here. I was curious about what you're saying about the audience for comic books kind of remaining relatively static. Do you think that's because you know there's a particular kind of image or culture around? consuming comic books that perhaps if you're not in that world people find it a bit intimidating to approach or I'm just thinking like what record shops used to be like I would go to them with my partner and they'd be full of you know I used to say smelly men and <laughs> you know and it's all very serious and and a bit intimidating if you didn't feel like you put it in because I was thinking that the you know in terms of the movies there seems to have been a conscious effort to kind of, you know, diversify the kinds of heroes that we're seeing with things like the, the Black Panther movies. But has that not kind of translated into a more diverse audience, perhaps for comic books? So I think that in terms of the representation of different kinds of people within the comic books, the comic industry is doing a, a much better job. And maybe Elisa can speak to this too. In terms of the representation on the industry side, the actual creative workers, they're frankly terrible. Um, almost everyone is still a white male. Now, part of that also has to do with the way that the market for art has become global. 
And different countries also have different traditions and different gender barriers. So that is complicating it even further. And there are some quite well-known and very popular female artists and female writers. So there's definitely more than there used to be. But as on the whole, the industry is still pretty behind in that sense. And I think there's a lot of desire to move forward. Marvel and DC have both, I think, I don't know if DC actually canceled theirs recently, at least I know, but both of them have historically had various programs to bring in writers from underrepresented communities and sort of give them opportunities. So that is something both companies care about. But the actual pipeline, it's going to be slow based upon the way that industry networks have historically worked and who was going into writing or drawing comics. Does that sound right to you, Elisa? Yeah, I think it's true. I, I, there have definitely been, from my conversations with people on the publishing side, concerted and continuous efforts and also the recognition. I mean, it's kind of a joke at this point, like, we can't continue to rely on our now aging 40s, 50s, you know, kind of Gen X, aging millennial white male base that's been sort of driving a lot of it historically as consumers. And manga brought in a lot of women. In fact, I had one publisher tell me that the future from their perspective, this is young women that they have to cultivate that more because they're like all the guys are playing video games. They aren't reading comics. <laughs> now, whether they were being snarky or not, maybe, but I think that there's an identification. And of course, you look at things like people like Raina Telgemeier, right, who is doing so well and different models that have been very successful. So I think there's there's a recognition that there's both a space and need, but the execution remains, as Greg noted, uneven at best. It can feel... Like there's a lot of room for people to move across from comics to to working in film and TV or vice versa. But it's it's maybe not as easy as some might think. Could you talk about that a bit? You know, for example, that the the lack of understanding that film and TV people have about what artists do in comics that they could also do in Hollywood. Whereas, you know, it, maybe it seems like a more straightforward process for, for a writer that they can move from writing other kinds of media to joining writers' rooms or being the sole creative writing a screenplay. Yeah, I think part of the issue is legibility or comprehension of how comics work by a lot of people in Hollywood, right? A lot of people recognize that Comics are potentially valuable IP, but the paradigm for Hollywood is so much more writer oriented, especially in TV. And so once you go more to the TV space, that is even more prominent. And so there's this perspective that the comic is the writer, right? Which is completely fallacious. It is completely co-created, co-visualized. And the way that a lot of different people I talked to said, it's like, the artist is the one who's the production designer, the cinematographer, the editor, designing the performances, so to speak, of the characters, all those sorts of things. But that is a very hard thing to explain. And it comes, I saw in terms of my interviews and Greg saw as well, at all levels of talent representatives, right? The people that are striking the deals don't even imagine talking to artists as co-creators a lot of the time, even though ownership oftentimes if it's a creator-owned project, will be split. 
right? And one of that is sort of the productivity also, the pace of productivity of artists versus writers. Writers can crank out a lot more content. Art takes time. Right. And so on a sheer sort of crass, and this was literally what someone said to me when I interviewed them on a crass level, they're like, artists won't make us money because they aren't producing enough. Right. So there's that kind of dimension to it. But then there's also the fact that the writers are able to transition much more easily into writers' rooms, but also Hollywood has been tapped or rather comics have tapped Hollywood writers who are like, hey, it'd be fun to write a comic book. And so there's also this sort of cultural perception that like, oh, you have back in the day, Joss Whedon or Kevin Smith, who kind of started a lot of this pattern of star people that were comics fans that got some degree of success in film and TV, and then are like, I'm going to write some comics. And that sort of helped contribute to this larger influx of people into comics to play a lot of the time, which also shifted the culture and the power dynamic. There's other factors as well, but I'll let Greg kind of piggyback on some of this if he wants to. Well, I was just thinking, and this isn't something that we talked about much in the book because it's it's a pretty recent phenomenon. It really started as we were finishing the book. But in terms of that productivity, One of the things we've seen recently is that writers have taken to newsletters and have used them both as a source of marketing themselves and as a source of generating revenue. And I don't know if any of you subscribe to them, but oh my God, the amount of content that comes in my inbox from these writers. And a lot of it's it's pretty, didn't take a lot of time for them to work to do it. But so they can generate this output, which also keeps me thinking about them. And then they can send to producers, get their name. An artist can't do that for the reasons that Elisa mentioned. Their productivity is so much slower. To make art takes a lot more time than, let's say, writing in a thousand word newsletter. I'm shocked at how long (laughs) these newsletters are sometimes. And so there's not the same opportunities of branding, marketing themselves to people. And I think that also as we move into this like hyper production of content and self-branding, that is also kind of inhibiting some of the attention they might otherwise receive. I mean, it's also worth noting, it's not to say that artists, in terms of fluidity between film and TV and comics, aren't doing that, right? But it's also the type of labor they do, right? So whereas writers will be going into writers' rooms or running shows or moving even into directing, right? Artists in most cases, there are some exceptions, go much into more below the line work, right? So whether doing visual effects work or production design work, storyboarding, that sort of thing. And so inherently the crediting of that is also a very different thing. And the sort of cultural valuation and positioning of that is a very different thing. And so it's not necessarily that they aren't able to have sustainable careers in those paths. And oftentimes, increasingly, a lot of the artists as they age do move into Hollywood, if not because they want to work in Hollywood per se, but because it offers like more stability and potential for membership in guilds and unions and benefits and those sorts of things, all the things that aren't provided through comics, which is a hard game to play the older you get. So that's sort of a factor as well. I just want to know that I think it's kind of funny that the comics industry is such that you can point to Hollywood as offering more job stability. (laughs) 
That's so grim. <laughs> when you sorry, when you talked about Greg, when you talked about oh my god, these these writers who do newsletters, I immediately thought of Kieran Gillen because I subscribed to his newsletter and that guy just writes a lot. Yes. Uh, but you're, yeah, you're right. It's it's not like you know if if an artist is creating work for you know oh this is kind of just for fun i'm going to put it on say tumblr or of late you know twitter or deviantart or something as kind of like a preview of something that i might sell or something that's going to come out in a in a comic or you know something like that that is self-created but still like you said it, it takes them so much more time the the counterpart to someone like kieran for example is the friend that he has made most a lot of his work with jamie McKelvey, and you know I subscribe to his Twitter and, you know, it's great when he does tweet out art and everything, but most of the time I'm just like, he's, he's tweeted a photo of his cat. Like he can't just output that kind of, you know, the kind of amount of content that Kieran does so much more rapidly. Let's talk about, yes, the precarity of comics work. It is notable, you know, if you have even a vague interest in comics that unless you are like working in the nuts and bolts of like a publisher, comics publisher, you know, a lot of the, the creatives are pretty much freelancers. They they work for hire. And it has largely been like quite a precarious industry to work in as creative, even to this day. And something that you note is that, you know, unlike, for example, again, Hollywood has a writer's guild. Comics really hasn't been able to do that even until lately. But even then, it's only been one comics publisher at the moment, Image Comics. And even then, it's the workers at Image Comics. It's not the creatives. So could you talk a little bit about the precarity of the comics industry, if you're a creator and even a worker until recently, and also about like unionization? Yeah, I mean, I think that point you make about Image is the key one, right? It's the people that work for the company as staff that organized. It's not the artists and writers. And what I find and what we found so striking is, you know, comics was ahead of the curve in one way in that it never unionized. You know, it's it dates like, of course, there's more recent industries like gaming and visual effects. But, you know, since the era of Hollywood, they were organizing in the 30s. Comics is coming up in the 30s. They never were able to sort of build or sustain that. And I think part of it has to do with the size and scope of the industry. It's just so small, right? Especially now, there were efforts, especially, for example, in the 70s to really organize. And there was a lot of pushback by publishers and potential for having people's careers destroyed. It's just such an intimately small industry. And the opportunities are so constrained in terms of income anyway, that organizing has constantly been combated through all sorts of strategies. And so it's almost entirely freelance. There is no or very little, if I know of, opportunities for employment at a company as an artist or a writer. It's all being hired project to project. Greg, what would you add? Yeah, I think that one of the things we've also seen that I think has made, I mean, from my perspective, the, the prospect of any unionization in the comics industry is it's not ever going to happen besides maybe the staff at companies. And one of the reasons too is Again, the industry is all sorts of countries with their own labor laws and rules. So the prospect of unionizing becomes even harder or would require kind of splitting off of who is working from where and what kind of worker they are. But the Image Comics is also an interesting example because 
Also, Himager's model would mean there's no logic for a union as well, because that's a publisher in which most of the profit, all of the profit really, is made by the creators. That also means that when the comics don't make a lot of money, that's also on the creator. So that possibility of owning what you make is a kind of double-edged sword that we talk about in the book, where you know, in some ways that's better than belonging to a union because you could become, in theory, like a millionaire if you really succeed. And Mark Miller is maybe an example of that. On the other hand, if you're just doing an average successful comic, you would have been making more money probably by working for Marvel or DC, even without any kind of union protection. So I think it's very complicated and maybe the possibility for freedom and an upside that doesn't actually manifest for many has been something that has kind of prevented historically the rise of unions. Many of the creators, at least I mentioned in the 70s, were not on board with the idea of a union. And the guy that was pushing it Neil Adams was actually from the advertising industry. So it was bringing a different kind of industrial mindset that his fellow comic book creators didn't share. And I'll just add one other thing. One of the points of contention during those conversations was what Elisa has just talked about. Writers and artists have very different senses of what the kind of protections and things they should be given are. Do you feel like that aspect whereby the company that's commissioning piece of creative work. I've just noticed in in terms of, say, for example, book cover design. In the olden days, the, the designer used to own the IP of the the artwork that they created. And then say if the publisher then licensed that cover for a foreign language edition, the designer would get a share of that revenue. But nowadays, a publisher would ask the designer to sign this, you know, fearsome contract that gave them all the rights and everything in all formats forever in the known universe. And they would just get a flat fee. That would be it. Because as you say, they're self-employed. They don't have the kind of collective strength to push back against those kinds of contracts. Is that, is that the same? And that's definitely a trend that I've noticed getting a lot worse in recent years. Is that something that's also gone on in? in the comic book industry. Yeah, I think that, you know, the work for hire relationship is a fascinating one in terms of, say, the DCs and Marvels, because technically speaking, you know, there's no obligation beyond like the royalty agreements or what have you that come to compensate people, especially if, you know, this becomes more profound as the designs of the characters, the stories that are being told, all of that technically is owned by these companies and they have no obligation to compensate, right? And so a lot of, or in most cases, unless there's good lawyers and that sort of thing, right? And the person has a lot of leverage. But in most cases, it requires some sort of either fan response or PR drive or shaming, active shaming to really lead to some sort of Result. Also, it's just very uneven. So publishers do, from what I've seen, they will send out compensation in various ways. And depending on the talent, they will try to, you know, give them certain perks for, okay, your comic was turned into a movie and we used your designs, that sort of thing. But again, there's no norms and it's uneven. And a lot of that information isn't shared in any way because no one wants to sort of expose their own circumstances if they do benefit. So it's it's a tricky environment. And 
further complicated by the extent to which talent representatives do or don't understand a lot of the nuances, although that was certainly something that we found in our interviews is, you know, a sort of coterie, a small number of those types of lawyers and agents who are starting to really understand the ways that they need to push for certain things. But even so, I've seen the education process needing to happen on the part of the creatives to those people. And I would just add, Rebecca, that the kind of relationship that you're talking about is really, and Elisa has emphasized this just with Marvel in DC. Most of the other publishers have adopted co-ownership models so that not just because they are nice or want to, (laughs) but legally the creators have rights. They might not have control over what's done with the things they create, but they have financial rights to the revenue it generates. And I think that also points to what we mentioned earlier that we're seeing because of this in the comics industry, this growth of a lot of non-superhero properties. And these things can also be turned into movies or TV shows, especially horror, crime comics, or things like Walking Dead that can make their creators really rich, or at least provide them the kind of thing that maybe royalties in television used to provide or still provide. So I think that that's really just with Marvel and DC and elsewhere, the publishing options, the rights are a little more fair. And I don't know, maybe that's independent public book publishers too. I'm not sure. As people who work in a book publisher, <laughs> and Rebecca just shared a look there and we're just like, no, that's not the case, but carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Cut that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> No, what's really fascinating is, and I think we try to underscore this with how we break down, there is the Marvel DC publishing model, but there are also the independent publisher models that function so differently. The mindset, I think, is so much, understandably, because we're barrage, it's a constant barrage of superhero content that we conflate comics with superheroes, right? And movies and TV, all superheroes, but the sort of richness of the landscape is such and the opportunity for creativity and ownership is such that these independent publishers differentiate themselves partly by the deals they offer and partly by the opportunity to publish different things. And so a lot of the space of even licensing and adaptation We don't necessarily even know that they're comics a lot of the time that they're based on, but they still, they are. And that, and Walking Dead, of course, was sort of the front end of a lot of that development. It's also worth noting that there is that idea that you want to create comics that can be film and TV, and there are certain publishers that are focused on that. But, and the image model, you can get very rich or or at least do very well just by publishing your comic and selling graphic novels and not making those film and TV deals. And so that's also another attractiveness because I do think there's a certain constituency of comics artists and writers who don't want to play the Hollywood game and want and appreciate the medium for the medium and want to tell those stories. 